1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Stefania Tutino, professor and the Peter Rail Chair in European History at UCLA to talk about her new book, A Fake Saint in the True Church, the story of a forgery in 17th century Naples, out this year, 2021, with Oxford University Press. Hello, Stefania. Hi, Anna. How are you doing? Super. It's a beautiful Congratulations
0: day. Congratulations for your
1: Italian. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, that's pretty basic. It Gets worse after that, I promise.
0: <laughs> we'll just stop there then.
1: Yeah, let's let them go. Uh, so, uh, how's Los Angeles this morning?
0: Beautiful, as usual. Another day in paradise, as they say. <laughs> Same weather all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I know fair I'm work. jaded. I know I shouldn't do that. It's a beautiful place. That we're was, very lucky. It's
1: fair. Whatever. It's your <laughs> thing. You get very
0: right? jaded after a while, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah day
0: 75 and Sunday.
1: Oh, yeah. Wow, that sounds terrible. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, so we're, the first job today is to put this current work in your trajectory and explain kind of how you came to write it. So your first book, way back in 2007, right? Law and Conscience, Catholicism in Early Modern England, Mm -hmm. 1570 to 1625. kind of starts you down your path as an historian of the Reformation era. And then your second book, um, which is 2008, Thomas White and the Blacklists, Mm -hmm. Blacklists between politics and theology during the Civil War, continues in that vein. Right. And it's also an exploration of English Catholicism, which is an interesting yeah. choice. Very few people work on English Catholicism <laughs> and fewer still of them are Italian.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I wanted to, I don't know, you know, I mean, I am fascinated by the history of Catholicism, but it's, um, you know, if you work in Italy on Catholicism, I found it a little oppressive because, you know, it's very sort of, so to study it outside, it was, uh, sort of liberating intellectually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, I grew up in a small town. I wanted to see the world, and England felt like a whole world. And sure. so I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it's far. It is very far <laughs> oh, away. Oh, from
0: Sicily, a very far away place. And so, yeah, so that was part of it, you know, to feel some freedom, geographical, but also intellectual, to explore something without kind of like the pressure of being in a Catholic dominated country.
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a story that doesn't get enough attention, so it's good. No,
0: no, yeah. that's true, yeah. yeah. No, I think so, yeah. I definitely think so.
1: But then you move to the continent. In 2010, right, Empire of the Souls, Robert, Bellamy, Robert Bellamine, and the Christian Commonwealth 2013, Shadow of Doubt, Shadows of Doubt, Language and Truth in Post-Reformation Catholic Culture, and mm-hmm. then Uncertainty in Post-Reformation Catholicism, which was 2017. And this speaks to the culture of the Reformations more broadly, yeah. right? yeah. And so I, I'm seeing like this career long interest in uh, a really long standing interest in Reformation's like the era of Refor- Reformation's kind of writ large, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And in a Catholic way, Protestant areas, small city Catholic, Protestant areas as well as the Catholic areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a fair characterization. Yeah, yeah, I would say. And uh, all of and there's there's a consistency here. And then this book res- represents a bit of a departure, though, right? If not in subject matter, at least a methodology. Yeah. Um, yeah, So how did you come to do this? What happened? (laughs) I think, you
0: know, the last books that you mentioned um, have this common theme about uncertainty and truth. And um, that's something I'm interested in exploring sort of in the culture of the Reformation era, but it's also something I'm interested in exploring as a historian. You know, we all sort of traffic in the business of truth. You know, we aim to tell something true about the past, but what does it mean? What the extent of it is? So that's sort of the general interest and then I just stumbled across this case where I was looking for something else completely in the archive entirely by chance as sometimes it happens and I thought this is an incredible story and it does speak to the question of truth um, and what kind of truth um, yeah and so I decided to follow through and then once I did that I realized that it required a different style so to speak because it is a beautiful story and so finally I could sort of put into practice you know, kind of like in a meta way, my interest for truth as a historian by taking advantage of narrative uh, more than I've mm-hmm. done in the past. Um, and also, I should say, I was teaching this class uh, to freshmen on the history of the um, Inquisition, and it started very sort of traditionally. But then I could see that just they weren't into that, and mm-hmm. so um, I started talking about the story, and and they started to sort of be fascinated by it, and. And so we started this dialogue and I workshopped with my students, undergraduates, yeah, part of that book. very um, okay,
1: cool.
0: Yeah. And so it was also a gift to, to them, you know, to, to pay them back, if you like, for what they gave me, which is the kind of enthusiasm and the kind of, you know, curiosity and yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we like, they love, like, students will do what you, you know, they will really get into some things. They will yeah. do this work. Yeah.
0: Oh they do and, you know they were they were my most careful readers they were you know um asking questions that i never thought about but they were incredibly good and insightful ones so this book is sort of is the fruit of that collaboration if you like i mean it really was sort of it grew up in the classroom if you like
1: ah uh, this uh, that makes so much sense because one of the I mean, one of the questions i wanted to ask you is kind of what your audience is because this is a really readable book see i
0: wanted it to be readable because you know you know, English is not my first language. You know, um, it's hard to write readable prose. It's easier to hide, you know, behind the jargon. Um, But readable prose is a wonderful thing. And again, like, to see my students understanding this. And, you know, it doesn't... I mean, it really is... uh, The concepts themselves don't need to be said in a difficult way in order to be reachable. Um, And so it was... I don't know, it was very... Writing this book was the hardest... uh, thing I've ever done because like I said writing simply takes a lot of care and work and uh, so I'm very grateful to my editor who helped me and you know she was a very good sounding board saying yeah this phrase uh, do we want to rephrase it yeah (laughs) and then my students I would ask them and they would be like "Eh," and so you know to find a medium where they really kind of like got into the language, it was very rewarding. And I learned a lot. I mean, I really did learn a
1: lot. I can imagine. Yeah, that's great. hmm. I mean, so it's, it's micro history. And so, and that has been criticized widely every, you know, widely. Um, And I'm wondering uh, what made you decide to do that? Like, how did you get a, how how do you feel about the micro historical question? I
0: think, I think that, um, Most of the criticism is fair in the sense that the kind of ideological and historiographical context in which microhistory was born is no longer ours, you know, and I take the point of the critics of microhistory, the Eurocentrism, the kind of like, you know, history from below, if you like. I understand that this is all being done in a different way. But the one thing that microhistory does, I think two things that are still very relevant, is one, um, the relationship with primary sources the fact that you really have to get intimate with the primary source to to do microhistory. And I think that is still something that we do as historians and we should do more of because I think it speaks to, you know, it teaches humility, listen to the sources, the kind of dialogue that happens between the past and the present, I think is still pretty much at the core of the profession. Um, and then the second thing that microhistory does is that question of historical imagination and narrative is part of it. Uh, you know, and again, it, there is a certain humility in it. You know, there are holes in, in, in the past that we cannot fill. Uh, but yet we have historical imagination that can help us connect with the past in a way that is not artificial and it's very sort of, you know, uh, authentic to, to the enterprise really of being human. You know, this is even beyond being just a historian. So I think those two things, the relationship with the primary source and narrative as a way to explore historical imagination, I think they're very, um, they speak to me, you know, still, even though many of the things that spoke to early microhistorians don't speak to me any longer. And so I wanted to try this genre uh, without the kind of ideological context and really um, for those two things.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. Um, the, the, it, it speaks though. I mean, right. When I think about when I started to love history, when I fell in love with history, it wasn't I was not doing like theoretical analysis. I was falling in love with stories and people who had lived in the past. And that is what, microhistory and like this deep dive into a small set of documents really gives you the feel it, you can feel it. You get back to that. And I think it's wonderful for classrooms. I mean, that's it speaks to students. I give micro histories to friends who are not historians. Right? I'm like, okay. "Here, read." Who doesn't want to read "The Cheese and the Worms," right? Who doesn't want to Except read it. like "The Return of Martin?" Yeah, it's a, two movies, hmm. you know. So and it, it's
0: good, you know, because we always say, you know, history is relevant. But what is it that is relevant about history? And I think what you said, you know, it's about like feeling close and yet distance to to a people who lived in different contexts and. Um, and I think that is something that everybody should sort of get into it. And microhistory is an excellent entryway. And I think it's, uh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, I do. I did fall in love with the stories too. Um,
1: yeah, that's yeah, where people lived. I my blog used to say that you
0: know that the most important ingredient in history historiography is humans. Uh, otherwise, it would be antiquarians. And he didn't say it disparagingly, but, you know, there is a difference between antiquarians and historians. And historians like humans. You know, they, they study humans in the past. They don't study things in the past. Or, uh, and so that kind of component of humanity, I think the stories make it very vivid.
1: Um, yeah, and I think it's what we have to offer as a discipline to the world that I agree. that the world I agree. really needs.
0: I agree. I, I'm really big. You know, the more I think about this, the more I do think that historical compassion, if you want, for mm-hmm. our fellow human beings, I think that's the lesson we have to offer. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, when people say the past is a foreign country, it is true. You know, the kind of uh, habit to understand alterity and diversity, uh, you you have to use it as a historian of the past, because those people are not like you. You know, they don't yeah. believe in the same things that we do, and um, and I think to learn how to interact with those people in the past with different values, with mm-hmm. different, uh, very different values. Um, I think it's something that teaches us a lot about, uh, you know, engaging with people who are different from us in, in the present, even.
1: Yeah, uh, no, very much so. Yeah, have a valuable lesson. Are you listening, people? Are you listening out there? Support the humanities and history in particular. Um, yeah, go humanities, yeah. <laughs> woo! It's true shout out so, to the humanities it's so simply it's like the idea that humanities are being cut is just so nonsensical like what I are know. what are we supposed to be doing in a in universe i know
0: but at the same time i think it's on us you know to be more upfront and to be more open and to tell people more why is it incredible to be lucky enough to study this for a
1: living and to you know um why are know. you so lucky to get to do it in class, even if it's yeah. the one class you're taking while you're oh, learning I mean, to build I... cars or whatever, you yeah, know? That's,
0: exactly. No, that's... that's why I love, you know, I love teaching, you know, uh, introductory introductory courses for people who are not majoring in history. And I feel very privileged and honored. You know, I have engineers in my class. That's the one class of history they're going to take. And they pick me. I feel like this incredible responsibility. And <laughs> yeah, it's
1: incredible. See, you know, it really is wonderful if you think about this. I, I fully agree with you, obviously. All right. So speaking, you talk about your relationship with your source material. Tell me about it. So you just stumbled upon this, I'm mm-hmm. assuming. You just ran in, in yeah. big folio. What happened?
0: No. So, you know, there is, I was in the Inquisition Archive. And so, you know, there is a set of uh, sources in the Inquisition Archive. They're called the CRETA. And they are the minutes of the meetings. So, you know, for every day that they met, they would write, you know, we discussed the case of X. And that That's what we decided. And I was just reading, looking for something else, and there is a lot of references to this saint, to the saint, and I never heard of this saint myself. So I'm like, "What is this saint? Who is these people? What are they talking about?" But I ignored because I was looking for something else. But the references kept popping up, and so I said, "Okay, now stop. I have to find out who, who are they talking about." And so, and that's where it started. And then I went to the other sources, other libraries, and I looked for stuff, and and that there it was. You know, this incredible story, kind of taking shape. Uh, And I never knew. I mean, it's really beautiful. I never, my ignorance was immense. Uh, But it turned out it was a sort of an important case. And, you know, relatively speaking, you know, I kept the the congregation of the index and and the inquisition occupied for more than 20 years. I mean, you know, it was, he had ramifications in politics. Um, That's a deal. Yeah. No, it was, you know, kind of like a big deal, so to speak, you know,
1: amongst us well, I mean, in, in this world yeah listen, and in I, this world and, you know <laughs> I think it's interesting that you could have never heard about this person yeah. and then all of a sudden it dominates your life for x number of years yeah. right no, that's all, yeah
0: that's what usually happens
1: okay yeah. um and so you but you this is it's a this as, as discussed it's a small story yeah. but it's a it's a big case and it speaks to a lot of historiographical debates yeah. right so you contribute to the conversation on the ongoing like culture of the Reformations what else do you think you're doing here?
0: Well, I think I'm talking about the difference between sort of, you know, a theological truth and historical truth. Um, the rise of uh, historical criticism, if you like. The rise of the culture of facts as opposed to fiction, if you like. Uh, the question of belief. What does it mean to believe that something is true in what sense? Um, the different meanings of the word belief. Uh, you know, microhistory, one thing that they do, you know, people think they do small things. I mean, the best microhistorians, you know, you mentioned uh, Carlo Ginsburg or, or Natalie and Simon Davis, they use the small things to say something big. Uh, and so that's the hope, you know, to use this small story in a way to say something about historical imagination, about truth, about belief, um, about facts, versus, um, in this case, theological, doctrinal, uh, absolute truth.
1: Um, the this tension between like truth fact truth and fact is a tension in itself but then like what we can know and how we can sort it out is something um is an interesting question and we keep coming back to it already um and it's something that you discuss kind of openly in you know you you really engage within the book that when you tell this story you fill in some gaps with possible options and this is also a move that sometimes can receive criticism like you don't know that yeah. Um, but you do it, and effectively. And I would. Why do you do this? Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, I think that you know, I, I take that criticism, but I also think that you know, ignorance is always present in any kind of historical inquiry. Um, but at the same time, like I said, we can we have historical imagination as long as you don't blur the line. And I I pay a lot of attention in that book to 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 differentiate the things that I do know because I have the the evidence and I have the documents, and I think that I imagine based on you know what you would call educated guess, you know, based on what I know about the context. Uh, as long as you don't blur the line between those two, I think that um, both of them are uh, critical to historical inquiry. Uh, I find historical imagination important, but not a substitute for documentary criticism and factual truth. Uh, but I think the interplay between those two, I think it's what makes us humans. You know, you it's sort of an existential position, if you like. Um, that I wanted my work as a historian to reflect um, authentically. Uh, that's all we live our life with you know we we know a bunch of things we imagine a bunch of things and that kind of interplay between those two makes our life frankly worth living otherwise it'd be uh, either a um, crazy uh, completely unattached to reality or it would be dry and so boring. see so see.
1: yeah. But I, I mean, and we tell ourselves stories while we're living, right? Mm. You you are continually engaged in this process of making your life real for yourself. This is it, a natural it, it, and rational. Wait,
0: oui, of course, you know you have to make sense of things. You know, events that happen are constantly. We constantly put them in some kind of story, you know, to make sense of them. Otherwise, it's just a collection of trite, uh,
1: casual events. And but that's not how we live our life. No. Um, and it makes good sense to to do that for your subjects as well. And I, I mean, let's be clear: you these these are educated like, guesses, right? You're not yeah. just making up. Oh yeah, it up. no, 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 no. You, I mean, you that's know the difference culture. between
0: and that's the difference between a good scholarship and a bad scholarship. I think, like you know, that
1: that's sort of, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah. And I mean, you 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 well understand as well as anyone can the mentality and I mean, like mentality and mentality of this mm-hmm. era right like yeah. you have you yeah. you know what people are thinking you've read their words you know yeah. this stuff
0: yeah you know it doesn't so. mean i cannot make mistakes uh but i think to the best of my ability the, those guesses come from my knowledge of the past not from my say knowledge of myself you know nobody cares about myself but
1: well you know yeah. and what makes sense to me is not what made sense to someone in, the, in 1650. Yeah. Right, that we just don't have that, you
0: yeah, know. And again, you know, it's the alterity I'm talking about. You know, like you have to make the effort of putting yourself into the shoes of people who lived, you know, five hundred, four hundred, six hundred years ago in a different context where they believe in different things. And you know, when, uh, with my students, this comes up a lot. You know, this is a society for which religion matters in a way that is not true any longer in the Western secularized world. Um, you know, the the transcendent perspective is, in fact, influencing everything that they do in a way that it doesn't, To to, you know, my student, you know, 21 year olds in 21st century America, they don't live like this. Uh, And so that effort needs to be made, because otherwise you don't understand.
1: Um, No, and they need, I mean, they need to, we all need to understand that we have an equally overarching, like, this idea we have an authority that we believe explains everything—it's just a different one.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, being a historian helps you to do that. You know, to realize that whatever kind of explanatory principle a society uses, it's a historical creature in and of yeah. itself. You know, there is no given that we—I I believe there is no given that we end up discovering in the end, and that's the truth. No, and exactly. they just didn't get it. It's just a. You know, product of different historical circumstances.
1: It's such a great narrative, that progress narrative, that there's this, that know, we're uh, the end of the story, right? Wouldn't Ta-da. be nice? Wouldn't it be great? But yeah, and then you get a
0: violence. Yeah, I know, but yeah. I, you know, I, you know, historians cannot believe that because no. you cannot. I mean, you really are incapable of of believing in that fully if you take your job seriously, as as you know.
1: Which I find comforting. I find the knowledge that in 200 years, should there still be people on this devastated planet, that we will we will seem ridiculous. They will think yes. what credulous fools they were. Yes. 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 And I, I find that very comforting. I find it fascinating and cute, you know, and
0: sort of, yeah, I, I, I have fun with this a lot. I have a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, you I, know, to live like the last, you know, <laughs> Highland, the last <laughs> immortals would be very boring, I find. I There's nothing to too. discover, you know, this is it. And,
1: I got to say, this might be a podcast. This might be a New Books Network first for me, a, a Highlander reference. That's brilliant. <laughs> I'm, God, I'm happy. <laughs>
0: you know, I have, I'm an exhaustible source of reference from the 80s. Anything cheesy from
1: the 80s, come me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I will remember this, They're the person I call. Okay. <laughs> Anytime. So, you know, we've, we've talked about it. Let's talk about, like, this story, because it's a great story. Who's Carlo Gala? Oh, Carlo
0: Calao was this, you know, man with great ambitions and a mover and shaker, you know, like this guy that showed up. I mean, you know, he was from a relatively wealthy family, but he wanted to make it big. So, you know, they send him to Naples where he becomes like a big dude in the vice regal government. Um, But his dream is to be a nobleman. He was just a nouveau riche, very rich, to be honest, but still, you know, Mm -hmm. nouveau. So he wanted to be uh, some kind of, to claim some kind of nobility. And just so it happens that research is being done to uncover this ancestor of his, who was a medieval soldier. They became, you know, one of the right hands of the emperor, Holy Roman emperor, but he also ended up being a saint. And he was excited by this discovery. And so he tried to get this ancestor sort of canonized and fully recognized as the noble saint that he really was. And that's sort of what the
1: story unfolds. So, um... What, what, why is it important to him to be a nobleman? Is this,
0: like, yeah, this you know, is nob-
1: something. Yeah, see
0: no nobility, you know, in America is, uh, you know, that's another thing that my students always say, well, what do you mean? You know, because true, you know, America was born on the sort of, you know, uh, on the wave of the enlightenment and the equality of all men, but pre-modern world didn't work that way, right? So in pre-modern world, uh, people who are noble, they are special. Nobility confers some kind of special characters and some special recognition um, that no other personal quality can match. Uh, and there were some dissenting voices, you know, people who said it doesn't matter who your family is from, it matters where you did, you know, Dante, and now this is the big anniversary of Dante, was one of those people who believed that what you have in your heart matters more than what you have in your family tree. But those were minorities, you know, in, early, in pre-modern Europe in general, the more noble your ancestor was, the better your family was, the more prestige and, and um, uh, advantages you could claim. And Carlo Carra was one of those people who, like many, many others, wanted a piece of that, you know. Um,
1: so what is it he finds exactly?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he finds
1: evidence that,
0: you know, in 12th century, there was a sort of an ancestor of his who did this incredible feat of strength. He was a giant, he killed you know, hundreds of men with his bare hands. Um, and so because of that, the emperor um, sort of left him in charge of the Calabria region, which is the southern Italian region where the family was from. And then he gets wounded, this you know, 12th century ancestor, and an angel saves him. And he decides to just give up everything and become a hermit. And then he acquires all this charisma and special power so he can cure the sick people, he can resuscitate the dead, um, and then he dies a holy death.
1: Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's an ancestor to want, right? The, the oh, you super would, yeah. fighter. Yeah,
0: well, so, you know, a giant. I mean, you know, there is a whole like <laughs> a, a sort of spin-off of the story that I speak about in the book that deals with giants, you know, the existence of giants, because this guy was supposed to be a giant. Courageous man, super soldier, political leader, saint, hermit, miracle worker. I mean, as that's far as ancestors that, yeah. go, like, you, you know, you basically, you hit the jackpot, which yeah. is what he thought. It was like, oh, my God, you know, what the hell? Like, finally, you know, this is it. This is my...
1: Yeah, you rarely get all that in one guy. And, yeah, I mean, I and, and that moment, that conversion moment that's really important to, like, the 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 story yeah. of the saints, right? Yeah. All the good ones have yeah. them. We can talk yeah. about Francis's. We can talk Precisely. about... Precisely.
0: You know, he had all this, this you know, 12th century guy, Giovanni, he had all the making of an incredible story you know if he if he only had been real
1: it if only okay, yeah, a little, I mean, it's a small if you don't just exist you know small it problem. Be perfect. yeah little fine. little wrinkle in the story is that this guy it's isn't like, actually real okay no. so then but the way this comes together is pretty great because it's not just that like Uh, that Carlo is doing this, Mom Vesuvius gets involved in his story. Exactly. No, I mean, it
0: it is an incredible story. You know, it is a fascinating world, the early modern world, precisely because of this. You know, you see prodigies and uh, even nature sometimes gives you a hand or not, as the case might Mm be. Uh, But again, this is part of a universe in which those things are all linked. And so it's just, you know, a good fortune that, you know, Vesuvius erupts, uh, just at the right time, creating this little prodigy, just at the right time, and bang, you know, like the whole thing seemed to conjure up a perfect scenario for this incredible saint to finally be recognized after centuries of oblivion.
1: Yeah, which is interesting in itself right and the idea See. that this guy would not have been known is, is kind of yeah. difficult to to swallow which you know they... yeah
0: from from the you know from the point of the church hierarchy to begin with you know and you know that's another thing that I always uh, find fascinating you know there is this sort of myth that my students and you know a lot of people have you know of the the Catholic leaders in the early modern world uh, being interested in covering up. They didn't think straight. They didn't think logically. They didn't think scientifically. They just wanted propaganda. You know, they just wanted their saints to be drummed up. But that's not true. And in fact, the first people who thought, wait, this thing stinks, were actually the leaders of the church. So he thought, Carlo Cala thought they were going to be ecstatic to have found yet another saint. But they thought, wait a minute, this guy we never heard of, is it really likely plausible that? He was such a famous big guy, perfect saint, and yet nobody has ever heard anything until the 17th century. Um, and so that kind of hint, you know, hermeneutics of suspicion, as it were, the first people to to bring it up were, in fact, the leaders of the Catholic Church.
1: Yeah. And this is an important message as well that, like, our, our students, nobody understands. The idea of the Inquisition is just... No. It's ridiculous, you know, when I, th- when I tell my students that there was due process. <laughs> exactly. Know, they're, they're... exactly. And they were
0: first tribunal to actually engage with the limitation of torture, for example, you know, not the benefits, the limitation of it. You know, they were the first people to, you know, openly in treatises, say, hey, you know, people under torture would say anything. Are you sure you want to go there, you know? Um, yeah, no, right, I mean, no. you know, it, that is not to deny the effects of the Inquisition, tragic mm-hmm. effects on the communities, you know, in the cultural life. But nevertheless, you know, it's not like you know. People think inquisition is half secret chamber, half police, half torture, you know, mm-hmm. theater. But really, it was a tribunal with quite a sophisticated understanding of legal process, and um, and you know, they weren't dumb. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, they weren't stupid. They weren't like blinded by this faith that made them say things that they weren't true. They they had all the interest to to be thorough because. Their job was to preserve the, the truth of Catholicism from falsity, including falsehoods that came from faking things that weren't real.
1: In, yeah, including beneficial falsehood. And you know, and so but this is possible. This is possible for a body of people to have a very strong belief, to believe that um, the eruption of a volcano that makes um, you know that spews ash and in, in like that makes crosses is 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 important. Right. That yeah. all matters, that is also yeah. evidence but is this paper really old? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: So with the same breath, they could Mm -hmm. believe that Mount Vesuvius gives crosses, you know, like dispenses crosses randomly, but they also were interested in saying, is the handwriting of this manuscript fake or not? Mm -hmm. Is the paper right or not? And, you know, in the the Vatican Library, there is actually... uh, some some still of these manuscripts that were forged, and it's amazing. You know, when we were kids and you used to, like, with the lighter burn the paper mm-hmm. to make it look old, that's exactly what they did. I mean, what Carlo Calla did, it was just like it looks like it was burned with a candle, you know, to just make it, the edges a little bit old looking. Yes. But yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah, in the same breath, those cardinals would say, Yeah, you know, Mount Vesuvius is operated by God, and by the way, the this paper is fake, and mm-hmm. the handwriting. Is not right, and the hink is not old enough to be twelfth century. It's um,
1: pretty amazing, yeah.
0: Me, no, I, yeah, it's
1: so kind of Vesuvius, one superstar that t- that uh, shows up in this book, and then also Joachim Fiore was makes the yes.
0: name, shows yes, up. Yeah, so you know, Joachim of Fiore, Joachim of Fiore is uh, quite a character. So you know, he is the today still, you know, so twelfth century hermit. Uh, object of much veneration and love and belief on the part of, you know, people in Southern Italy especially. And, you know, I'm from Sicily, so I'm next door to Calabria, and I, I'm privy to that kind of enthusiasm for joking off here But then again, he's also a kind of a weird guy. He got condemned by a Pope. I mean, not him, but some of his work were condemned by a Pope. Some people think he was just kind of nuts. Uh, and some people, meaning even some Popes or some, you know, Cardinals, um, to the point that this canonization procedure is still open. It was supposed to be closed any day now. I mean, you know, people are waiting to see if he's really making it as a saint or not. But A, he was real. B, he was famous. And so when this story of the fake guy started to circulate, they got it linked to the story of Joachim of Fiore, who is unquestionably real and was unquestionably the object of much veneration. But he's another character that deserves a lot of attention, because he's quite an amazing character. He's one of the few, you know, to be like in, you know, when people list the saints or blessed or miraculous, Mm -hmm. you know, workers in the church, he's one of them. But then there are catalogs in which people list heretics, and he's also, his name also appears in that as well. Because for some people,
1: that's who he was. He's Well, he's definitely borderline, right? He definitely yeah, he's,
0: has He's definitely borderline. I mean, you know, and when you go there, I would, you know, I would love for people to, like, go to Calabria, to the mountains, the Sila Mountains inside of Calabria. It's a very, very um, unbeaten, you know, off the beaten path, you see, if you like. Mm-hmm. But then you feel the weirdness, the kind of borderline, the kind of world in which things are really borderline miraculous, but also super creepy and devilish at the same time. You, you know, you feel it almost in the air. Uh,
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's on my. That is actually on my vacation list.
0: See, um, no, it should. It's, it's an incredible place. This whole sort of mountain, you know, because people who go to Southern Italy usually go for the beaches, which is great because there's incredible beaches. But the mountains inside the southern edge of the Italian Peninsula, uh, they are really wild. Um,
1: Ooh, many okay. senses. <laughs> See what? L- listen to this, people. You get. You learn about books yeah. and you get vacation tips. Yes. This is an excellent podcast. Yeah.
0: Great as um, well.
1: So, but I mean, the story—it—it also there's a there's a resonance here, right? There's the hermit condition, the like, um, the sanctity, and so it's wise to link them.
0: Yeah, but it's also you know I think there is also a story about center and periphery. You know, things from Rome. I mean, think about this: Rome is like the metropolis where all the intellectuals are, where all the theologians, the big you know, knowledgeable people. But then when you get to the edge, in these tiny little villages, in tiny little communities. Um, what from Rome looks borderline and suspicious and kind of like not really kosher, when you get into the periphery, those heroes are important for the community. And so you get a lot of that, you know, a sense of really the diverging interest from the center of the Roman world, you know, for where all the leaders are. They think one thing, but then when you get to the little communities, then people, you know, so the veneration for Gioacchino uh, da Fiore, Joachimo Fiore, it's a good example of that. From Rome, everybody's like, "Yeah, really? It's borderline. It's not." But there, in the in the local community, it fulfills a role. You know, his monastery is still being visited by people. People, you know, when they want to pray for some kind of, you know, grace, they pray to him. They don't pray to a famous saint. They have no connection with, so to mm-hmm. speak. They'd rather pray to the guy that is not yet a saint that is kind of borderline because they feel it belongs to the community. So it's a lot of sense of the community taking ownership of these local figures. Mm-hmm. And Rome has to, you know, deal with that, you know, they might not like it, they don't like it sometimes, but that's what sort of the, their subjects, quote, unquote, want, they wanted a local person that they feel close to.
1: Yeah, the, and the Romans are so dismissive of these of the country folk, it's-
0: yeah, but you know, like if you are like the leader of the Catholic Church, I mean you know the, the the today, if you go to Vatican state, you realize how small it is. you know there is few selected people who are supposed to run the whole of Christendom. Um, so you know there is a selection effect. you know, you don't make it to the Vatican unless you have a high high threshold for belief. But then again, you know people who are on the ground, they have a different threshold for belief.
1: Sure. And you don't make it to the Vatican if you are not a very learned, very intelligent, yeah. Yeah. very, yeah. like, this is, yeah. I mean, this is yeah. the height of the intellectual world in some way. Exactly. exactly.
0: You know, that's what my, my you know, I always tell my students, they really want to be on top of things. You know, the leaders of the Catholic Church in the pre-modern world, they don't want to be left behind. They are reading up on, you know, scientific advancement. They are reading, they are like, you know, Quran because they cannot afford to lose truck. They kind of afford to be left behind. So they are not just, you know, very learned, but they're also sort of cutting edge learned, quote unquote. You know, they're sort of at the front for the the, of their discipline because they need it. You know, Mm -hmm. if you want to run the church, you want the church to stay relevant. You have to keep on, you know, kind of moving forward.
1: And I mean this is like we've talked a little bit about this, but I really want to stress this that like these are people, the I mean the Inquisition in particular, a terrible terrible reputation, but uh, but I mean, all of the people, the whole of the people of the curia, these are people who are um, who are not credulous fools. No. They are very no. smart and, and exactly. they're very interested in what they view to be the truth. Right? Exactly. They are not
0: credulous fools. You said it perfectly well. You know, they are not credulous and they're not fools. They need to be not to be credulous, because the, the future of the church depends on them. You know, If you just say things that aren't true and people find out, then you lose credibility, and this is not something that they can afford. They're supposed to keep the church true and credible. And this is something that, you know, that needs to be stressed, I think. The truth and credibility, they are, they are both very present in the mind of the leaders of the church, the whole curia. They are interested in this time, in this point in time to assert the truth of religion, but also to show its credibility, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that that's uh, that's important.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's part of the response to the Protestant. There are responses to Protestant criticisms that kind of like, you know, throw up your Except, hands. Yep, yeah, that is true. We are exactly, doing that. We exactly. need to fix and, this.
0: Yeah, and you know, Protestants are the same, right? You know, so there is a whole like you know, the, there is a whole pan-Christian, if you like, push you know, the Magdeburg Centuries, Cesare Like there is a lot of initiatives, both on the Catholic front and on the Protestant front, the aims at purifying their respective confessions from falsity, to just sort out the wheat from the chaff, you know, what is true, what is not true, so that they can get stronger because they cannot be accused from the other part of being credulous fools. You know, nobody wants to be credulous fools. And if they, they, exactly, and so they, they don't want that. They don't want to be perceived as such and they do what it takes.
1: So they have, they have, um, they spend some time with this document, right? They're this whole oh. case, right? The Curia has some, they have a hard spend time a deciding lot. what to do. Yeah. What's going on there? What's like, tell us about the process. What are they doing?
0: You know, some of the people in the Cura realize immediately that this is a whole bunch of BS, you know, baloney, like total fake. And so they want to shut it down. Other people say, well, it might be very well be true that this is not true. But at the same time, where do you draw the line? I mean, are miracles kind of true? Or does the truth of miracle always require, if you like, a suspension of judgment? Where do you draw the line? Mm -hmm. So that was the debate. Do you go hardcore, this is a fake, let's just shut it all up? Or do you really massage it because you are aware of the implications of that? So none of the people kind of like, you know, drank the Kool-Aid. But some of them were more for coming into shutting it out for the sake of the real truth, so to speak. Others were more for a solution of compromise. You know, he's a big guy in the Napoleon government. After all, there is a lot of miracles whose uh, truthfulness cannot be verified by means of you. So are we sure we really want to go like call out and say this thing is fake? And so in that, they just failed to take a decision for for decades. They just couldn't reach
1: I mean, and this is a political concern on their part, too, right? Very much so. Very
0: much so. You know, and again, you know, politics, and that's the other thing, you know, the the Curia is a political body. Mm -hmm.
1: They are in charge
0: of, in fact, an incredible transnational, spiritual, but not just spiritual, empire. So political considerations are at the heart of, of the Curia's working. But political consideration doesn't mean being a credulous fool. They're not drinking the Kool-Aid. They're just thinking, hey, maybe this Kool-Aid serves some purposes in many ways, and let's be mindful of the, the ripple effects uh, of the wider repercussions.
1: It yeah, uh, so, doesn't
0: make them stupid. It you know, makes them politically political leaders, which they were. I mean, think about the papacy in the pre-modern world was a political and a big one at that, you know, yeah, source of influence.
1: Naples is rich and important.
0: Naples is rich and important, and the relationship between Rome and Naples are not very harmonious, you know, because of the, yeah, you know, they are all, you know, they're all Catholic, you know, King of Spain is Catholic, you know, it's all good, but we're in the same team, but it doesn't mean that we always get along. And in fact, there is a long history of little, you know, fights and conflicts of jurisdiction taxes between the the papacy and the kingdom of Naples. So do you really want to, like, make a big deal and piss off, you know, this big guy in the, the government of Naples for the sake of, of a guy that we all know is fake, but it's a nice story and it's very edifying. Cause you know, the saint does very good things. And so that's sort of the consideration that, that effectively prevents the the member of the Inquisition from or you know, or the index or the curia from actually taking a stand. They are paralyzed, they don't know what to do. Which is also very interesting. Yeah. I
1: I think it is. Well, because there's the idea that we are dealing with this very politically savvy, very um, kind of that's an important thing to note about them anyway, that you're talking about a body of politicians as well as learned men and of men of faith. But then this other thing that like the the tacit admission that some saints are fake, right? They're say, They're in the canon and they're wonderful and they're venerable and we're going to keep them because they're very important. But maybe this really didn't happen. Um, demonstrates just like an, a whole nother level of the utility, the thinking, the utilitus, What's si, si. yeah, yeah? There's an yeah. adjective there that I'm not coming up with in yeah. English. <laughs> the usefulness of the of sanctity.
0: Si, si. And yeah, you know, Marx had a point, but you know, it wasn't the first one. I mean, you know, the the the, the sort of that kind of like utility of religion for the sake of um, other considerations mm-hmm. is something that you know early modern leaders had very prevalent. I mean, there is an element of cynicism in it that people, you know, again, like you think about men of faith, right? My students, when they think about men of faith, they think they cannot be cynical. They have to believe every, but no, that's not the case. You know, that you can, exactly. You have the men of faith, but you also have a little cynicism, call it cynicism, call it awareness of the functions of religion. You know, sanctity as a political function, as a liturgical function, but it's also as a, you know, cultural function, it's a civic function. Look at what happens today, still in Italy, when there is the, the, the feast of the patron saint in a city. It binds people together, which was all the more true in the early modern world. You know, now we have other uh, venues to come together to express our identity. But at the time, you know, uh, the, the feast of the patron saint was one of the most important one of them. So sanctity fulfills a lot of functions, including the theological one of you know, providing a conduit between you and God. Uh, but the leaders of the church were aware of all of those functions they just didn't deal they didn't deal simply only with the theological one they were very aware of the wider cultural political social civic function of Santity
1: sure. and um, and also as you mentioned the didactic purposes like this, mm-hmm. is, the yeah. like. this is the story we
0: like this is a story we like because the story we can you know like we can we can relate to because it's fun you know talk about sort of doctrinal theological um concepts uh, to a bunch of people who are not literate or are semi-literate doesn't get you very far, but to give them an example, you know, to give them, you know, somebody to imitate, um, that there is mm-hmm. that it's a different kind of didactic value to it. And so we, we run with it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And do we all, you know, i yeah, know, sure of my anecdotes of people from my students.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Let me tell you about this really exciting exactly. person. You could be exactly. like that.
0: It's a, well, you know, think about the idol, you know, I mean, I always, you know, my students are always very fascinated when I tell them the etymology of idol and talk about American idol, you know, what it means an idol, you know, to have idols, you know, to venerate somebody, the images of this perfection that is unattainable. But then once you have the image, then you can see it and you can strive to become like one. So I always tell them, watch out when you vote for American Idol you're voting about an idol. You're not just voting about the singer.
1: No, that's what you're doing. You're creating this cultural And so
0: they go like, ooh.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And they should be more careful. Mistakes have been made.
0: (laughs) I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm pretty sure that, you know, being aware of what you because an idol is a very, very good lesson to have in life.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. All right. So how does this all end? Tell me the rest of the story. So, okay, so... Carlo Cala makes up, he discovers the saint, like his, and his uh, fabulous ancestor should be a saint. The curious just doesn't know what to do with yeah. it. They sit on it yeah. for a couple decades.
0: Yeah, they sit on it. You know, sort of in the meantime, he's, he's, he thinks that this paralysis is good news. It means that they cannot decide, so he might as well go ahead. And then what he does is to start uh, implementing or promoting actual veneration for this guy. And this is where he loses sort of, you know, the whole this game. Mm-hmm. Because as long as you're talking about a story of a saint, then you can have some uncertainty. You know, is it fake? Is it not fake? Is it useful? But once you start asking people to venerate somebody who most people knew never existed, let alone was mm-hmm. a saint, then you're crossing a line. You're going from the world of discussing about this possible case to the world of actually having people pray to this guy. Mm-hmm. And this is where the Inquisition gets involved and they shut off the whole, they shut down the entire uh, story of Giovanni. Nobody's allowed to talk about this guy, nobody, this ancestor, nobody's going, of course, nobody's allowed to venerate him, um, but nobody's also allowed to tell the story anymore. And yeah, and so... That happens in a time where his political career, Carlos' political career, is also on a downward spiral because the Viceroy changes and the new guy is not as friendly to him as the previous ones were. And so that ends sort of, you know, everything for him. Uh, his prestigious political sort of push, uh, his weight that he was used to throwing around, it's over. Uh, the one thing that we never find out is whether or not he was a victim of the fraud or he was the instigator of the fraud. Nobody, nobody, including myself, could establish with certainty whether he was in on it from the beginning or whether he believed in the story himself. He was the first victim of the fraud Mm. rather than the instigator of the fraud. We just don't know.
1: Who would have done that? Who would have been
0: the instigator if it wasn't him? I mean, there is the guy who actually materially forged all these documents. He was a local client, if you like, and he got a lot of money for it. So he, he fed to the Duke of Diano, Carlo Calai, said, hey, you know, I found this document. I found this one, and there is another one, and there is another one. I found the bones. At some point, they even find the bones of this fake guy. Uh, and I found, um, you know, an image, and I found another story, and here is another manuscript. Um, so it's either him out of his own volition to create the whole story just to please Carlo and to get the money, which he did, uh, but there is another version of the story in which Carlo and this guy kind of get together. Carlo tells this guy, "Can you fake stuff for me?" And this guy went kind of overboard and started to fake in you know hundreds of pages of documents. But we just never know if he was is you know this local forger's initiative or if he was just a gun for hire. Mm-hmm, and by the a- time they discover the whole fraud, the forger is already dead. So they cannot interrogate him. They cannot ask him anything. They cannot put him on trial.
1: No. Ah, no. I, I would really like to hear what he had to say.
0: Yeah, oh yeah. You, know, yeah. you and the both <laughs> both. I mean, you know, there is a whole people in the Curia who wanted to like, hey, you know, let you know cuz they really were desperate to see did, did 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 Carlo tell you to do it or did you do it on your own accord? Cuz they would have changed the the you know, the role of Carlo, mm-hmm. which throughout the story was always that of a promoter of a fake Saint, not of the creator of a fake saint, so he was never punished. Insofar as he created the forgery, he was punished. Insofar as he made such a big deal out of the forgery that had that you know presumed to force people to venerate somebody that the church said never anything about. They didn't say it was fake, but they didn't say it was real either. So, from the point of view of the church, he was a non-entity. He stayed in this limbo, uh, and so people cannot venerate people that don't exist as a category you yeah. know
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting i mean and the the fact he would have been a very easy sell right if this oh, easy sell. yeah this forger could have you would have seen him come in a mile away that makes sense oh yeah
0: that's the thing like he was that obsessed carlo everybody knew he was obsessed i mean you know for all of his money that he accumulated which he accumulated a lot everybody knew he was obsessed he wanted a noble lineage he it bothered him that it was a parvenu. He just wanted to be coming from a bigger family than he was. So you know, you come to him and say, "Hey, I found your ancestor." He would be like, "Yeah, really? Yeah, what do I say? <laughs> of course, I knew. I've always known it from you know, from that I was better than this."
1: Yeah, obviously, it's, it's inherent. See, you can tell. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting that when he 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 pushes too far, but that's yes. also, I mean, there's it's not coincidental that the church shuts it down when, his no. power, when, when he he's...
0: was down. Yeah, again, you know, like church is not stupid. You know, mm. like it's much easier to kick a man when he's down than when he's not and so you know it it was a sad ending um, to any no yeah no I mean you have to feel for him you know I mean it is a story of scorned ambition of the futility if you like of ambition but it doesn't detract the kind of like human pain you almost feel for the guy like you know he had all this you know incredible ambition he comes with nothing I mean
1: and oh and he's got so much but it's just not enough like this is no, this no, is one no. of the tales we love in humankind See, right?
0: exactly. no exactly know i you know yeah.
1: motivating tale we write mm. fiction about this
0: See.
1: yeah very cool all right mm. so what's next what are you working on now
0: oh now i'm working on this book on credibility so you know i've worked with uncertainty i've worked with doubt i've worked with truth and now i have um I'm finishing this book on credibility and judgment, which is the other side of the coin, you know. Um, so I usually, uh, you know, in my past scholarly work, I've explored what happens when you don't have certainty. And this new book is about how do you get certainty when you can. Um, and then after this is done, which is pretty soon, then I have another project, which I'm so excited about. And it's it's uh, uh, 1626, a year in the life of the Roman Inquisition. So, you know, 1626 is a very interesting year because you have a lot of sources on it. I'm not going to bore you, but there is like a lot of things on it, so you know exactly what happened in the whole year, all the correspondence that was written, all the cases that were dealt, down to a T. And so I want to write a book to just tell people, like, what did the Inquisition do in this given year? And I also think the pandemic has taught us, you know, there is something exceptional about 2020, of course, but there's also something that is not exceptional in the sense that the pandemic, in fact, exacerbated dynamics that were already present. Inequality about healthcare access or racial inequality or, you know, it, mm. those things existed before, you know. So uh, the pandemic brought them to the surface. So in 1626, in a way, was not an exceptional year. It was just a regular year. But stuff happened that year. They didn't happen before or after. And so to focus on a whole year at the Roman Inquisition, I think... Is a good exercise in what is really exceptional and what is really structural. Mm-hmm. What are the things that are, uh, that happen, that magnify a phenomenon? And what are the phenomena that are actually present throughout? So studying a year is a good test case study, you know, for that kind of what changes, what is exceptional, what is ephemeral, and what is structural, permanent, long. So I'm very excited.
1: That's very cool. I'm excited about that, too. I love that idea. Mm. So,
0: you know, and then there will be
1: like a chapter for, you know, there is a sort of a
0: beginning of classification of what happened in the whole year, you know, the rhythm of the year, what happens in any given year. But then there are all these like chapters on the specific type of crimes and cases they dealt with. Lots of sex, lots of money, you know. Yeah. Turns out, money and sex, you know, yeah, in the form yeah, of okay. bigamy yeah. or solicitation, you know, like um, sexual sins or marriage problems. Turned out that between that and money issue were the, <laughs> yeah. among the things, that, yeah, that consumed most of the inquisitor's
1: attention, in you know. Yeah. How about that? That's what humans do. How yeah. About... In- indeed. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh funny. I've taken up quite enough of your time. So. Oh,
0: it was a pleasure, Yana. I'm really thank you for talking to me. It, it was, was
1: fun. really delightful, and really. I will uh, I will be around. I will definitely be getting in touch. We'll talk about your next books too. So <laughs> <Yeah. good. laughs> All right.
0: Ciao. Thank you so much. Ciao. Ciao. ciao.